some of the things that are considered conspiracy theories are real sometimes. Mm -hmm. Just because you think the government wouldn't do that. They probably already have. Um, <laughs> there's, I don't know if there's anything I would say that the government wouldn't do. And I am Cushion. <laughs> and we're the Ghouls Next Door. We're the, you know, uh, drug dealer, sex worker, and pimp next door. We could do sure. that. We are the unlikely <laughs> heroes of the story. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we're the Ghouls Next Door, a media literacy show from a horror lens where we explore the real life historical governmental uh, influences behind our cinematic fears. Um, and mm -hmm. today we're talking about They Clone Tyrone. And it is the <laughs> the manifestation of just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not after you. <laughs> yeah, like just because you're paranoid doesn't mean you're wrong about it. Yeah. Like some, of the, some of the things that are considered conspiracy theories are real sometimes. Um, Mm -hmm. Just because you think the government wouldn't do that. They probably already have. Um, <laughs> there's, I don't know if there's anything I would say that the government wouldn't do. Yeah, but I'm sure someone in the world, as evidence through what reality is right now, yeah. does think that. <laughs> so they're wrong. That's it? true. That is true. Yeah. Um, yeah. And just like sometimes it really is like if it, as absurd as it may feel. It's probably true. Like the, that's what I've been saying before too. Was like there are sometimes when, you know, like the right wing conservative, like those conspiracy theories that get so close to the truth, and then they get weird. Yeah. <laughs> Where yeah. it's just like the government is listening to us. They're poisoning us. <laughs> they're putting stuff in. Like they're watching us. Like all that stuff. It's like yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, those things are, are true. doing all those things, and then they're um, like, and they're lizards, and be like, all right, <laughs> okay, you lost, lost me, me lizards. Yeah, <laughs> you lost me, you lost me. Yeah, me, yeah, me in the first half. I'm not gonna lie. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and that's what this episode is of this film, They Clone Tyrone. Is they're like, it's not as absurd as like the the reveal of this is, but that it's not wrong. <laughs> these things yeah. are in a in a multitude of ways forms of manipulation and control um we've just absurdified it uh so we can also laugh <laughs> About, <laughs> so yeah I, and i think that is um something I really appreciate about they clone Tyrone because it could have gone a different way if it had a different attitude or approach it could feel like preachy it could mm -hmm. feel like easily just like oh okay <laughs> the liberal yeah. agenda over here you know like something like that right? yeah and instead it was like haha the government <laughs> the government is strategically like poisoning us and controlling us and you know doing all of these things to keep us obedient and it's like it's not wrong like it's such a, it has so many critiques um yeah while still also being hilarious like truly one yeah. of the funniest films i've seen in recent time yeah it kind of it's like a what they were saying about the like comedy and horror kind of blending together or like being similar in their 
way of delivery. Definitely. Mm-hmm. You're getting something really horrific, but you're getting it in a comedic way, which is like an easier way to digest it. I think. Yeah. It becomes more palatable. Um, you're more susceptible to the messaging because you're mm-hmm. like, <laughs> your guard's wait a down. second. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh. <laughs> Yeah. Wait. Um, and yeah, it's a good joke. Great joke. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and I think that's a really, you know, great, uh, uh, testament to the, the writing, um, but also the performances. Uh, I was saying like, this is the funniest I've ever seen Jamie Foxx. I know people love Jamie Foxx for sure. You're allowed. Um, I generally feel pretty lukewarm. he's around i'm like whatever um but him and this was brilliant he had so many great lines and the delivery was like perfect every single time and the third like the three of them really played well on each other and having like john Vallega as like the straight man kind of in these roles of you know two goofballs (laughs) around him and then he has to be like really yeah, <laughs> we really Super serious. They did so well, and, and so much of the film is uh, is improvised in those ways. Like a lot of those lines mm-hmm. are just them throwing them out, and I think that brings a really organic, fun atmosphere because it's like they get it; they know the characters. You can trust them to do that, and um, they can still hit the mark. And it's not something that we like wrote ahead of time and predicted. Um, oh, wow. I didn't know it was actually improvised. That's such a fun fact. Like a good amount of stuff. So like there's a lot yeah. of like the some of the funnier lines and just like the interactions with characters are improvised or it's just like I love them so throwing much. out some ideas. There's a lot of fun. I recommend folks if you watch They Clone Tyrone, also look up some of the bloopers um, because it's funny because you see them trying out different lines or trying out different things and. It must have been a really fun Oh my God, now I want to do that. That sounds very fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're going to talk about They Claim Tyrone, um, which is a, a newer horror film. It was written pre-pandemic and then pandemic happens, you know, so yeah. um, it came out recently and it is, I think it was a sleeper. Like not enough people are talking yeah. about it. It is up there in my like appreciation of film with like, sorry to bother you get out <laughs> like it is yeah. it is uh on par with them in in being entertaining uh having like fun aesthetics right loud aesthetics intentional um and also teaching us things making us think yeah. <laughs> so um we have a very long episode <laughs> i know we keep saying yeah, that this a whole season. we're we're figuring out how to get back into writing our scripts and we just haven't figured out how to write less <laughs> so yeah. um and there's just so much to say so you like it that's why you're here and so yeah <laughs> it's hard to be intentional and vague at the same time we're working on developing that skill set. <laughs> yeah yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> well why don't um i hop in so let me tell you about they clone tyrone and some of the things that go in line with that idea of just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not watching mm-hmm. you. Um, excellent. So uh, They Clone Tyrone is from 2023, and it is about a series of eerie events thrust an unlikely trio onto the trail of a nefarious government conspiracy, conspiracy in this pulpy mystery caper, and it's directed by Joelle Taylor. Um, this is a directorial debut uh, I believe, which is just like, whoa, that's so fun. <laughs> we 
yeah. good job. Like, I was reading that they wrote on other things, but that, yeah, this was their first movie movie. Yeah. Just them. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A lot of it, like, also reminds me of um, Atlanta. It has similar, like, Atlanta vibes mm. um, in the writing. But uh, so, Make Clown Tyrone is a loud, absurd, and charming sci fi film that's equal parts black exploitation, social commentary, and confirmed conspiracy theories. <laughs> So we follow three unlikely heroes, which is a, dro- uh, a drug dealer played by John Boyega, uh, a sex worker by Tiona Paris, and a pimp, Jamie Foxx, uh, as they uncover a conspiracy in their neighborhood that shakes their understanding of the world around them and their place in it. Um, has mm-hmm. really second guessing any choices that they've ever made and if that exists, <laughs> if choice is actually true. So, um, yeah. As how the story goes is that Fontaine, a local drug dealer, runs down a competitor trying to sell on his turf. Later, while he's out to pick up his money from Pimp Slick Charles, uh, he is gunned down in the parking lot by their rival dealers. Um, and you'd imagine that's the end of Fontaine. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's it. He got gunned down. That's how it's so sad. Now we have a new character, right? Uh, only he wakes up the next morning, seemingly unaware yeah. that he died the day before. <laughs> is like going about his business uh in his normal routine before he returns the slick charles's for his deuce because he's like ah, i didn't pick that up yesterday for some reason yeah so i gotta do it now gotta go there and slick is reasonably shook <laughs> by the ghost of fontaine on his doorstep he's so funny he was like you're gonna put a ghost on a pimp's doorstep like <laughs> So sad. He was like, what? Um, And he brings in one of his girls, Yo-Yo, who confirms the story that Fontaine did die last night. um, And he was in the parking lot. So how is he here with them walking around? Like you, you were dead, (laughs) like fully dead. And also just like as a sidebar, it's a really like brutal death. And it's so shocking and yeah. it felt really realistic and it was such a, a significant mood um in the midst of a very comical premise mm-hmm. um so just like it is like if you're sensitive which reasonably so um yeah. especially if you live in philadelphia or any of the other cities where that's a really stressful thing um yeah. that's a trigger warning for you um not you don't have to do that to yourself so um this leads the trio to investigate this insane story because what is fontaine doing here alive um Mm -hmm. it's like goes to christmas pass (laughs) (laughs) on their journey they uncover a hidden underground lab below someone's home it's like a house in their neighborhood um which has been clearly used as surveillance like people have been taking shifts they got like and then they got yeah. this underground lab. They go into an elevator. Um, yeah, it's just in a closet in someone's room. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, and it was like this call. Like, they do go in the elevator. And it's such a, you know, uh, direct opposition to something like, nope. <laughs> the whole thing is like, <laughs> yeah. people like, go in an elevator. And so it's it's really fun that they do. Um, yeah. And they do have that, like, like Sick Charles is like, are you serious right now? Yeah. <laughs> Why would I be doing that? So the lab pushes them farther down the rabbit hole after they encounter a very white black man, um, a mysterious white powder, and most perplexingly, a clone of Fontaine. 
So as they work to uncover how deep this goes, they find their whole neighborhood, which is called the Glen, is being surveyed and controlled by a mysterious higher power. Um, Their cultural staples are twisted into tools for control from their music, food, hair care, and even their religion. Uh, Every Mm -hmm. piece of like what they took as just regular life is in some way being either surveyed or manipulated um, for a form of control by the government. Mm-hmm. So nothing is as it seems, and this new reality sends Fontaine on a spiral. Uh, Yo-Yo's sleuthing and journalism skills come in handy as she works to fight to free the Glen from this influence. Um, and she tells Fontaine in a heartfelt scene, the shit is bigger than you. It's bigger than me. And mm-hmm. uh, when... And just like, as another side note, like Yo-Yo is the heart and soul. Like Tiana Paris, first of all, I love her and anything she's in. Yeah. Um, she's adorable <laughs> and an amazing actress. Um, but she yeah. is so so much of the heart of this film, and the she's like per- continuously propelling it forward and is so endearing. It's it, like mm-hmm. I fell for all the characters, I guess, except. I didn't really care if it's like Charles, like he's whatever. Um, Fontaine's going through it, right? Yeah. Um, but she's like, the, the compassion she has for other people is so beautiful. And she's also different because um, she's not a clone. Mm-hmm. She's she. They didn't even consider her. Like the people yeah. who were playing these cards didn't even think she was going to be any kind of threat. Um, and she is, so... And she just cares. So when Fontaine refuses his hero call to adventure, Yo-Yo answers the call herself. And despite so much of their lives being controlled and manipulated, each of the trio learns in their own time the threads of individuality and community that are deserving of protection. Um, And it takes a whole hood, but they manage to take down the sinister Cabin in the Woods-esque conspiracy that seeks to erase their culture, identity, and force assimilation through the threat of annihilation. The villain, played brilliantly by Kiefer Sutherland uh it had me thinking like sometimes when a white person plays like a villain too well in black horror yeah <laughs> once we think it like Allison uh Williams from Get Out or um there's just like a few of them where I'm like Leonardo DiCaprio and yeah. Tango or whatever like Mm, where that, where's that coming from? He's not su- he's actually really just feels like a tool. Um, and he's just kind of parroting what he has been led to believe. So he's not mm-hmm. as sinister as some of his other ones, but I was still like, Keith, you be you be you've seen me play a, a vampire, and that seems more sympathetic to me than <laughs> he's here. Um, I've seen yeah. him as like a serial killer. You remember phone booth spoilers for anyone? Um, <laughs> but uh, Kiefer explains in the film the purpose of this experiment, saying, um, America was an experiment, a half-baked idea cooked up by aristocratic ideologues living in mansions built by slaves. And when they checked out, they left us with the bill, a country constantly at war with itself, no common ground, no dialogue, no peace. If we're all on the same page and not ripping each other's heads off, then all of this has a chance to work. And that's what we strive for, keeping these United States united. Um, to which like the answer that <laughs> when they were like when they left and they left us with the bill you know what would help that reparations <laughs> like it reparations is kind of the answer to that one yeah, um, that help. <laughs> it's like oh we're all equal now if you want the united states to be united why is that answer to you to like further oppress anyway 
The film is brilliantly <laughs> casted with John Boyega as Fontaine, uh, considering he has experience with sci-fi criticisms of the government uh, from his role as Moses in Attack the Block, which the ghouls covered when we first started making video content. Uh, it was mm-hmm. like our second episode. <laughs> it was uh, pushed together with um, uh, Earth Girls Are Easy, so I'd love to do an Attack the Block one day of just that film because it's amazing um but for those who don't know attack the block is a film in which a group of young black boys must fight uh to protect their block from monstrous aliens uh and it starts with the boys robbing a young white woman who actually um is jody whitaker who's eventually the Mm. 13th doctor who um but she's quick to demand justice and she's like labels them monsters and is like oh i should you know um to be playing too well. Uh, and then <laughs> through the film, the boys protect her and transform her understanding of them, uh, revealing like her prejudices, but also like the the prejudices of the environment <laughs> that mm-hmm. she just like wasn't taking into accountability. Um, but the biggest comparison I find between Attack the Block and They Clone Tyrone is a declaration by Moses in the film, They Attack the Block, where he says, Government probably bred those things to kill black boys. First, they sent in drugs, then they sent guns, and now they're sending monsters in to kill us. They don't care, man. We ain't killing each other fast enough. So they decided to speed up the process. Um, And if they ain't killing us, they're reprogramming us, forcing assimilation, right? So I was like, Mm -hmm. of course he's in this. (laughs) It's like he's already done. Like, this is just that times two. Um, This is like if Moses grew up. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) like um tiana paris is absolutely charming as always and her portrayal of yo-yo elevates the piece um like as i said she is the heart of the film and her care for others offers a softer lens into an unsettling plot but there's also this side note that she has been in a commercial for mcdonald's like a long time ago (laughs) which was purposely catered towards black people like there's this whole um criticism and commentary on uh fast food chains and how they uh, make commercials specifically cater to black people um, and mm-hmm. of color. And it's one of those that's kind of cringy. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I I think it's a fun extra layer. I don't think it was intentional, but I was yeah. like, wait a second, isn't she from that commercial? Because I watched someone on TikTok who was talking about it and she like used a clip from it. And I was like, it is her. I would never forget her face. It's too cute. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the film exists in the modern day and we're aware of this due to the technology available and from the characters discussing things like blockchains and Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. But the aesthetic of the characters and then Glenn as a whole feels more ambiguous. It feels kind of like a town lost in time. Um, and so mm-hmm. director Joelle Taylor explained in an interview on Decider um, titled They Clone Tyrone Ending Explained, What Do the Clones Represent? Um, and said, it's not a period piece, but when you go to certain places, it feels like you're in a different period. So I wanted the Glen to just be out of space and time. This could be any city in any year. And obviously we put a couple of clues in there. You see an iPhone, but you also see old flip phones and tube TVs and the decor is dated and all of that is design is by design to create a level of temporal dissonance. <laughs> yeah. Um, which is true. Like it does have that in a way that, don't worry darling was trying to do where it was like we're old timey to be like you know 50s publicity um which totally was their intent right um Mm -hmm. there was still a lot of modern influences which is what dispelled this understanding of it being that time period um Mm -hmm. and that's like happening here but 
we know something's up like yeah <laughs> like immediately so it's kind of like i think it's right also um if you just think of like access to technology or access to those pieces that we consider like modern um mm-hmm. they're not always accessible to like yeah. lower income communities and so you would see an eclectic mix like of you know an of old two, t- two yeah. tv but an iphone right absolutely uh, but further, it is heavily inspired by the black exploitation film movement, um, and Taylor skillfully blends the staples of the '70s film with this modern-day horror film. Um, and they clone Tyrone, like the black black exploitation films that inspired it, subverted stereotypes and reframed black villains and victims into heroes who fought against oppression and the man. Um, <laughs> I have not seen a lot of black exploitation films. Uh, we covered mm-hmm. uh, uh, Doctor. Black and Mr. Hyde with mm-hmm. Michelle Mission a long time ago. Um, but I watched uh, uh, Black Dynamite specifically for this <laughs> film because it's referenced in this film. Um, and because it was funny, it was, it was pretty funny. It's definitely like, oof, it, is a, it exists. Um, and it's not even like a true black exploitation. It's making fun of, anyway. Um, yeah. An article on filmlifestyle.com, what is black exploitation, the central guide to the subgenre, uh, in an article. Uh, writer Matt Crawford explains some of the main characteristics of black exploitation films that we can clearly see in They Clone Tyrone. So they say, one of the most recognizable characteristics is their urban setting, often highlighting the gritty realities of inner city life. The music score also plays a pivotal role in these films. Funk and soul tracks not only added a layer of cool to the characters, but also reflected the cultural trends of the time. And I'll talk about the music's impact uh, in the next section, but this is such an important part of the film and in black exploitation films that inspired them, which often featured overt lyrics and messages within the songs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's it, like they just use as another part of um, elevating the message. And so Crawford continues with the genre is also known for its aesthetic choices. Costumes and set designs were extravagant and bold, mirroring the flamboyant fashions and attitudes of the era. The use of bright colors and flashy clothes was intended to empower characters. Such visual boldness also foregrounded cultural pride and individuality. Um, and despite the film being modern day, the colorful wardrobe of the characters paints a picture of individuality and unabashed pride, um, like we, uh, like they did in the black exploitation movement. It's kind, of, it's pretty mm-hmm. like, it's another part of the frozen in time, seventies. Yeah, <laughs> um, some of the lingo is that, but also like yeah, um, what they're they're dressed as feels that way. And Crawford also expands on the theme, the theme of the films, um, black exploitation films, saying, finally, these movies frequently address themes like racial injustice, economic hardship, and the fight against organized crime. They presented African-American heroes who could outsmart and outfight their adversaries, offering a form of cinematic escapism that was both entertaining and empowering. Um, mm-hmm. Oftentimes it did feature, you know, it, it was directly combating the role that um, black people were taking in quote unquote regular film where they were, mm-hmm. you know, villainizing or victimizing um, sex workers and pimps and the drug dealers and all these other people, they were like, giving them these labels. And so they were like, okay, well, what if those people were the heroes? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, and we're not going to say, no, we don't have those here. We're going to say, so, <laughs> and they're pretty fucking cool. Uh, we love them, yeah. you know? So, and I, that's something I really appreciate is like that idea of like, um, subverting and also like just taking it back, like, mm-hmm. and 
so Celia is a sex worker. Yeah, and they're going to save the day. She's cool as hell. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, that, that's, like, two different, like, what? Um, I don't see the causality here. Uh, so let's talk about weaponizing stereotypes and cultural staples. Um, so the villainous government organization veiled in, unveiled in the film used many Black staples and stereotypes to control the Glen. At first, the trio uncovers loud and absurd conspiracies. Um, example, the fried chicken and grape juice are being poisoned. <laughs> mm-hmm. Right. And those are, you know, silly uh, 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 stereotypes. You know, they're playing at that, that black people love these things. Um, mm-hmm. And the government has been using the mysterious powder that they found in the lab in the kitchen, uh, the, in the chicken and, and grape juice. Um, and now the food and drink has the Glenn laughing hysterically, too distracted by this unreasonable joy to ask questions. Right. Um, it's a little mm-hmm. brave new world in there. Um, and the toxicity of the fast food industry and its insidious predatory relationship with black and brown communities has a sordid history um, with many black, brown and lower income communities in cities living in what we call uh, food deserts. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. These are these chain restaurants have uh, the neighborhoods in a chokehold because they don't have alternatives, right? So the lack mm-hmm. of access to fresh, healthy, affordable, and sustainable food contributes to growing health issues. Um, and the Food Empowerment Project has a great article about food deserts where they explain, according to a report prepared for Congress by the Economic Research Service of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, about 2.3 million people, or 2.2% of all U.S. households, live more than one mile away from a supermarket and do not own a car. Mm-hmm. Like if you're not near a supermarket, like you can't even like go get <laughs> like like food to yeah. plan and prepare for the rest. And of then the, the affordability week. factor, additionally, like the one that is there is overpriced and not affordable. Mm-hmm. Especially if like the the neighborhoods in the process of gentrification, um, mm-hmm. and it's trying to scale up to cater to the newer population coming through. Um, And they go on, the the article goes on to explain that a defining characteristic and issue of food deserts is socioeconomic, saying they are most commonly found in black and brown communities and low income areas where many people don't have cars. Studies have found that wealthy districts have three times as many supermarkets as poor ones do, that white neighborhoods contain an average of four times as many supermarkets as predominantly black ones do, and that grocery stores in African-American communities are usually smaller with less selection. People's choice about what to eat are severely limited by the options available to them and what they can afford. And many food deserts contain an overabundance of fast food chains selling cheap meat and dairy-based foods that are high in fat, sugar, and salt. Processed foods mm-hmm. such as snacks, snack cakes, chips, and soda, typically sold by corner delis, convenience stores, and liquor stores, are usually just as unhealthy. So you're left with yeah. like no options. So having a commercial <laughs> is kind of like, <laughs> like it, it's you don't need it. They don't have a choice. Like having a commercial yeah. gives you the illusion of a choice. Like, don't you want to go mm-hmm. to McDonald's? No, nobody wants to go to McDonald's. What are you talking about? Um, <laughs> so uh, the the chicken place also has this, a, a comically loud and goofy commercial that promotes a joyful and life-changing experience at the restaurant, promoting hysteria. Um, it makes me think of like the the one Popeye's lady, and she's just like, I love my Popeyes, you know, and you're yes, like, well, I know that yeah. you know exactly who it is. Right? Just yeah. like, I love that. Like, okay, I see what we're doing. Like, I get it. It's Louisiana. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but what are we doing? 
Um, yeah. But this, uh, the, the chicken place has like a commercial where people are like lining up like they are queuing up outside and it is crazy. Um, and actually in an interview, I, I saw um, the director uh, mentioned that the film had been, uh, that had the film been released when they originally planned, they'd have premiered before the Popeye's chicken sandwich craziness. <laughs> um, oh yeah. So like, remember that mania that was happening? Um, however, the pandemic delayed their production. So they missed out on that particular predictory commentary. That would have been pretty funny. Um, yeah. But like I said, fast food has a greasy relationship with the black community with many of their ads being obviously urbanized uh, to cater to the demographic. You'll catch a commercial using outdated slang, dropping G's at the end of words promoting a transformative mm -hmm. lifestyle through their food and service. Um, there's a great video about the history of these commercials and their connection to like minstrel performances um, by mm. Garrison Hayes on YouTube titled the infamous black McDonald's commercials. Um, they talk about one where it's like, there was like a slew of commercials in like, I think the nineties, maybe eighties where mm. um, this boy who like lived in the hood or whatever gets a job at McDonald's and like the hood is proud of him. <laughs> It's like a three-part okay. series of commercial where it's just like, Calvin got a job at McDonald's. It's changing his life. And all his friends, like, what are you saying? Um, yeah. He also has one where it's like, they, <laughs> they're like, oh man, they, they need to go to church, but the granddaughter didn't make breakfast. So instead they go to McDonald's and the grandmother is like really happy. And he's like, my Nana would not be... <laughs> excited if we went to mcdonald's before church that is not happening yeah <laughs> so yeah but it's a great video check it out so in addition to the weaponization of fried chicken and grape juice the experiment turns religion and hair care against the community too so the local church representing the southern baptist movements of motivating preachers soulful music and fanaticism has been sharpened into a tool and below the church is the main government base of operations um which is pretty clever <laughs> Think about yeah. all the other secret things that happen in religious settings. Um, uh, because we don't have to patrol them as much. Um, we yeah. do, but they don't, you know what I'm saying? Um, above yeah. the pastor shouts about obedience, promoting ignorance, and to ignore the worries around them. He shouts in that sing songy pastor rhetoric. Keeping watch over the wicked and the good, but also the weak. And do you know what he wants most out of each and every one of you? Say it with me if you will. I know you know it. Obedience. Then it's, I was like, that's exactly like a sermon. It's not like it's absurd because it's in the movie and you're looking for it. But I was like, but that's not far off. I heard that same <laughs> sermon. Yeah. Um, and he works to ease the anxiety, dismissing the concerns that could distract them from that obedience, saying, Because it don't matter how bad your life is. It don't matter how to get a victim. It don't matter. You got a life you'll do. It don't matter. And you got to ask it too. It don't matter. Your grandson Jamal was gunned down in a drive-by shooting right next to the Derrick Right. Uh, you just got to trust in a higher being who is a higher being we don't know and yoga responds uh to that and she whispers 
they gave Jim Jones a run for his money. Um, and we talked mm-hmm. in our episode last week on Get Out about how when Rob mentioned Ref- Jeffrey Dahmer, that was intentional as he was a serial killer mm-hmm. specifically sought out black men. Well, Jim Jones is right there alongside that monster, having gone from civil rights activist to mass murderer after he poisoned the Kool-Aid. He's actually flavored, but poison the kool-aid yeah. um killing thousands of his congregation made up entirely almost entirely of black people um he was a cult leader who specifically killed black people so yeah it's also very intentional um especially because he started with good intentions too um yeah the hair care comes through when Gilio discovers they've been poisoning their laxer to work similarly to the fried chicken, the opiate of the masses sedating the community so they don't fight against the oppression and control right and there's a critique here on beauty standards right having yo-yo as our hero who has sported a full fro um confront the menace of straightening your hair is a commentary on black women needing to manipulate their natural hair to conform to white beauty expectations um Mm -hmm. see any article or story where a black woman was told her natural hair was not appropriate for work (laughs) or school that happens a lot at schools too and then those like student sports mm-hmm. community yeah it's like their natural hair is is not appropriate which is wrong um mm-hmm. right uh and in an underground lab testing in the underground lab testing we see a woman um in the clock, clockwork orange type torture device where like eyes are held mm-hmm. open um being subjected to images of black women having their hair straightened and being softly lectured that she too can be beautiful um and later we find that yo-yo has been wearing a wig the whole time and this is actually a lifesaver protecting her from the relaxer treatment and allowing her to fight against the scientists scientists who didn't even know she was wearing a wig (laughs) that's how dense Mm -hmm. they are um about black women's hair um Mm -hmm. and yeah it's it's obvious (laughs) the last weaponized stereotype i will mention is the music right uh the music has such a strong impact on the film and the community and throughout the film the music is feeding us secret messages is it inspires obedience and controls the emotion of the community whether overtly through lyrics and titles um like in the underground lab we see two men uh fighting uh as the scientists play a track titled kill a motherfucker uh mp3 before hugging it out to a track called i need a hug mp3 um and there's mm-hmm. a history in america of villainizing rap music and blaming it for violence so this experiment is that theory made manifest like Mm -hmm. oh look it happens right um and be sure to pay attention to the songs on the radio and throughout to catch the subtleties too like when we hear diana ross's love hangover at the same time we see a poster for the experiment that says unity starts here at the top and winning the race Mm -hmm. to the future at the bottom with a white man scientist holding a double helix little scientist guy and right at this you see that poster right at the same time that in diana ross's song we hear her say if there's a cure for this i don't want it yeah that's so brilliant um even more interesting (laughs) is the control from music that we can't even hear um in an interview on youtube titled director joelle taylor uncovers the easter eggs in the clone tyrone uh taylor confesses to using what he calls sub frequencies which are frequencies of sound below their threshold of hearing so they would be like Mm. (laughs) subliminal right um and the music they made uh that controls the crowd of people outside the strip club is a subtle morse code um and says things like stop and surround them stop and subdue then later on when the 
crowd calms down, the message is saying carry on or as you were, um, which as a sound designer is so cool. <laughs> that is like, um, like, cause like, you know, he didn't have to do that. He did not have yeah. to. <laughs> so cool and that's why it's like you know so much of it is like like i heard the music and it's so like when he's on like in the car you hear like the lyrics and things are telling yeah. you exactly what to do like when um they kill him the the music is telling them to do that like uh so that stuff is so overt and i didn't i was just like oh there's a sound and the people are reacting to it um that but it's so cool. literally a like the sound designers created a morse code sub RO frequency song that says that and i'm like that's crazy it's also kind of scary <laughs> It's yeah, it's definitely scary. scary, but it's also very it's so cool. Um, and and I did notice in the <laughs> watching Black Dynamite, they also had music that was like literally telling you what was going on. It was pretty fun. Mm. So, um, also talking about assimilation is better than annihilation uh, is this kind of tagline that the big bad has. So let's talk about ass assimilation in They Clone Tyrone. Uh, so in the end, the big reveal for the experiments is that the scientist behind the cloning and the whole lab is a black man, is a Uncle Tom, <laughs> uh, who, not just any black man either, right? It's the OG Fontaine. Mm -hmm. uh, this man lived through the instilled memories of our drug dealer Fontaine and his answer to how can we get them to stop hurting us was to become them. I won't hurt us mm. if we're them, right? And so as Hollow Man Sutherland explained in his villain speech, we need to keep these United States united. So OG Fontaine now works to turn all black people into white people in a weird reverse get out premise. Um, and this is why throughout the film, we've encountered so many white people with froze. Um, and because he says the hair, it turns out, is stubborn. In an article on Afro Cinema File titled The Truths and Symbolism in They Clone Tyrone by Aces Butterfly, they explained on the theme of assimilation, saying the clones are a metaphor for the way in which white America only finds black people and black culture palatable and worthy of their money, power, and comfort of white society if they are whitewashed. And how many trends or styles have been ripped from black and brown identities and relabeled for white audiences? Looking at you, the clean girl aesthetic. <laughs> that is over now apparently um but it was just essentially yeah. latine makeup it's like the mm. tight ponytail it get out of here it's appropriation 101 right in addition yeah. to this reframing of black culture to a whitewashed lesser version there's also the act of oppression by making the glen an undesirable area prompting neglect or you know uh people caring significantly less about this area, right? Um, and you can watch yeah. any of our videos on redlining to learn more about how America does this without science fiction. <laughs> so yeah. um, Aces Butterfly goes on to say, if the scientists have their way, eventually all black people will be white. Assimilation is better than annihilation, J.B. Alms tells Fontaine, which is OG Fontaine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Lastly, and as a way to uh, segue into cat section, we'll talk very briefly about government control. The biggest theme of commentary that can be found in this film is government control, right? And the story, mm -hmm. like black exploitation, films that inspired it, including Black Dynamite, where the villain is revealed to be Tricky Dick Richard Nixon, of course. the films uh, make a preposterous vi version of a real villain out of the CIA and government. So Cat yep. will discuss the truth of this in more detail in their section, but one of the biggest conspiracies that are very real is the idea that the CIA was behind the crack epidemic in American cities, and the motivation behind this was to control and harm Black communities. Um, 
to villainize them and, you know, pass on their agendas. Uh, and Taylor isn't shy about the intentions of the film, saying in an interview with GQ titled They Clone Tyrone director Joel Taylor on his favorite conspiracies and winning over Erica Badu, who did, she does that song, uh, You Better Call Tyrone. Mm-hmm. Remember? Someone used to sing yeah. that karaoke every time we went. Yeah, um, she redid that. it for this. Um, <laughs> just a, like, sorry, last side, sidebar. Um, when he like approached her to make it, she's like, oh, you want me to Berenstain Bears this? <laughs> and so <laughs> they like, amazing. make clone Tyrone. I've been saying that like all the yeah. uh, So listen to the yeah, credits because yeah. it's it's there. Um, but in that, art, <laughs> that article interview, he says, um, it was originally going to be called Reagan era. And my team was like, nah, dog, you got to call it They Clone Tyrone. I thought people wouldn't take mm-hmm. it seriously. And then I was like, but yeah, you probably shouldn't take it seriously. Right. Like I, mm-hmm. having it have that fun aspect, like we were saying at the beginning, allows it to be more palatable, allows us to be able to mm-hmm. laugh and like cry. <laughs> like, <laughs> ouch. <Yeah. laughs> well, like what, yeah, what you were saying, like not re traumatize the audience. Yeah. Sure. And, you know, this film is loud about its commentary while entertaining us, like Get Out and Us. The absurdification of the conspiracies doesn't minimize them, but instead confirms them because we're like, okay, like we could look at the the absurd premise and laugh off how silly the shouting pastor is and the relaxing relaxer, uh, but it also allows us to see the truth. Because sure, it's not that, mm-hmm. but it's certainly something, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like it's not that, but isn't it? Um, in an interview with NBC News, you could do an interview uh, titled How They Clone Tyrone Transforms Racial Archetypes into Unlikely Heroes. Taylor admits to the intention of the film saying, we're really... Uh, going out of our way not to be like, this is what it means about the state of the Black community. You're going to watch it and draw a conclusion that may or may not be even be something we intended, but it doesn't make it any less valid, right? And that's the power mm. of media. We talk about that all the time. Once you think yeah. a thing and other people start weighing in, everybody who touches this film transforms it into something else um, and something mm-hmm. more, even maybe than you intentions. And so... Um, I think this like fun way that he approached it is really um, amazing (laughs) because Mm -hmm. it it just makes it, it it makes something that could be really bleak and traumatizing. Not. Yeah. And it kind of like uh, honors the human element of like, we're unpredictable as creatures. (laughs) Mm -hmm. We're just super unpredictable. So like the whole thing is like, they underestimated like everyone in that. And then they were wrong because they did not predict that. And just like when you're watching the film, there's lots of end or ways you can interpret the interpret the information that could be unpredictable to the original creator. It's neat. That's all that yeah. has to say. Is that's neat. Um, my section is going to be depressing as heck, y'all. So if you don't want to be depressed, I honor that for you. Um, but I'm going to get into it. It's a lot and, and reasonably so. So my te- section is titled "The Covert Dance: CIA Drug Trade and Its Impact on Black Americans." In case you forget that we live in an insidious country that actively harms humanity, or you are just as tired as we are, today we are unpacking Reagan, their economic policy, and America, including the CIA and OSS's role in organized crime as well as the drug trade. Um, The drug trade is relevant to the spread of cocaine, crack, heroin, and other drugs in the U.S., which deeply impacted impoverished Black neighborhoods. And if you already know the gist of that history, this section will not be like anything especially new. I'm going to give history from like World War II to like the late 90s. Um, But if you already know the gist, 
It's okay. Uh, I'm to give a trigger warning. Many of these things that the United States government has done are very upsetting um, and have caused extensive harm, both internationally and nationally. So if you're not in a place where you feel safe hearing that information right now, or if you don't want to see my face or hear my voice specifically speak on these things, but still have interest in learning about the information that I'm presenting, um, we have links in our show notes as well as on our blog. Um, the CIA said they did all these things for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so like you can read all of it yourself mostly. without me telling you. Um, <laughs> And uh, the reason we're unpacking this is obvious in the context of They Clone Tyrone, a film that in many ways represents this history and impact. Many of these claims have been admitted by the OSS and CIA. They were the same. Uh, it's just like the OSS came first, the CIA came second. Um, and congressional releases as a result of lawsuits filed against the agency. And as we discussed in our episode on us, it's fairly co common for the U.S. to release information on past atrocities as a distraction for current ones. So, uh, and like, what's really like, it's not cute and it's not funny, but it's, uh, they'll be like, okay, like we did it, but like not in the way that you think. And that makes what makes it okay. And it's like, no, <laughs> but in it's the way still that... like admitting to it. <laughs> and like, just cause maybe like, we don't have enough evidence to like be like this guy, get him. Uh, doesn't mean it didn't happen. Like if you look media analysis and historiography lens, like there is a reason yeah. things are portrayed to us in a certain way and history will tell us eventually, or it'll be erased entirely. So we kind of have to do our own deductive reasoning. Um, just cause they don't have like the exact names of every single guy doesn't mean it didn't happen. So, yeah. um, I'm going to get America into be it. like that, like abusive, you know, gaslighting boyfriend. Yeah. Of like, yeah, but you like, you don't know why I did it. Like, yeah. I don't care. <laughs> yeah. And it's also you like, did it, dude. what's like interesting about this is like the integrity of reporting or whatever. It's also like a white supremacist academia kind of energy where mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, sure. We don't have like the pictures of every guy who did it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. So I'm going to get into why I keep saying that. Uh, so um, <laughs> the intricate relationship between the intelligence agencies and illicit activities, notably the collaboration between the CIA and organized crime, have left an indelible mark on the history of the drug trade. The reality of the CIA's complicity in funding drugs that were sold and distributed across black neighborhoods, combined with the economic policies enacted by Ronald Reagan, deeply impacted black American communities. The shift in public opinion surrounding poverty as a whole combined with racism fueled this narrative pushed by the Reagan administration and has also impacted media and public opinions support around support services as a whole. Like We still see that today. Um, and today we're exploring how the United States, the CIA and its predecessor, the OSS and President Reagan impacted black communities as well as other nations, shedding light on the intricate connections between U.S. funded organized crime and the crack epidemic. Um, I do want to clarify the U.S. and CIA have been doing horrible things long before Reagan, and I'm going to cover some of them. Uh, things that really came to a head during Reagan's presidency, but have been happening, honestly, for a disgusting amount of time. So the information... The dawn of America. Yeah. I am presenting either connects to the film directly or establishes context for how we got here, as well as provides a more clear understanding of what our government and intelligence agencies are capable of in the interest of eliminating any doubt anyone might have. Um, so some of this might not seem directly like impacted by the timeline of Reagan, but it all connects to really just show you like our government is gross. So I'm pulling this from a timeline from a congressional report titled Intelligence Authorization Act for Fiscal Year 1999 from the House of Representatives, which was released on May 7th, 1998. 
um, titled A Tangled Web, A History of the CIA Complicity in Drug International Trafficking from the Institute for Policy Studies. Um, the precursor to what we see take place during the Reagan's presidency was that the U.S.'s alignment with organized crime and international drug smuggling. The rationale for these engagements were to stop communism, control U.S. financial and territorial interests, and protect national security, as well as avoid congressional oversight. Um, the control and alliances with international drug smuggling provided finances that did not need congressional approval and provided easy access to chemicals and drugs for interrogation and control. Whether intentional or not, the results of the USA's policy around prioritizing national security and U.S. territorial and financial interests over human lives has negatively impacted our country and many others as a result. And the drugs that made it here were a direct result of either government funding, intervention, or neglect. So how did we get here? During World War II, the Office of Strategic Services, known as the OSS, and the Office of Naval Intelligence, known as the ONI, um, the precursor organizations for the CIA, forged alliances with leaders of the Italian mafia, notably figures like Charlie Lucky Lucino, uh, Meyer Lansky, Joe Adonis, and Frank Costello were recruited from the New York and Chicago underworlds. The collaboration aimed to maintain contact with the Sicilian mafia leaders exiled by Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. Domestically, the goal was to prevent sabotage on East Coast ports while in Italy. It aimed to gather uh, intelligence on Sicily and suppress the growing Italian Communist Party. It all <laughs> comes back to communism. We know the U.S. loves to flex stopping communism as a smokescreen for atrocities. So while Charles Lucky Luciano was uh, imprisoned in New York, he earned a wartime service pardon and was deported to Italy. There, he established a heroin empire by diverting supplies from the legal market and building connections in Lebanon and Turkey. These connections supplied morphine-based labs in Sicily. Additionally, the OSS and ONI collaborated with the Chinese gangsters that controlled vast opium, morphine, and heroin supplies, which contributed to the establishment of post-World War II heroin trades, third pillar of the Golden Triangle, which is the border region of Thailand, Burma, Laos, and China's uh, Yunnan Province province. So this was during World War II. So it's almost like during this time, it would have been great if the government um, and the OSS slash ONI focused more on stopping like the literal genocide of my family and the millions of others that our PA congressmen love to leverage as justification for backing Israel uh, and the current genocide taking place in Palestine um, against the Palestinian people. Uh, and did that instead of funneling money into drug trades to stop communism. <laughs> Yeah. So I'll keep going. After the yeah. war, um, in 1947, the newly formed CIA engaged in the U.S. intelligence community's anti-communist efforts. Love it. Uh, the agency collaborated with the mafia to secure control over Sicily, providing support for their battle against communist unions in Marseille. During this time, financial aid was directed to caution mobsters involved in heroin smuggling, particularly in their struggle for control of the city's stocks. And by 1951, a partnership with Charles Lucky Luciano and the Corsians led to the establishment of the notorious French connection, dominating the global heroin trade from uh, until the early 1970s. Additionally, the CIA recruited members of organized crime groups in Japan to ensure the country's alignment with non-communist world, specifically uh, the Yakuza, <laughs> became a significant source of methamphetamine in Hawaii. Wow. Um, why is the CIA 
putting so much of their time and energy into drugs. Well, let me tell you, uh, these connections to the international drug trade gave the CIA access to chemicals and drugs that would be used to conduct experiments and interrogations. In the 1950s, the CIA initiated a project, Bluebird, to explore the potential use of certain drugs for improving interrogation methods. This effort involved... Uh, this effort evolved into a broader program authorized by CIA head Alan Dules in April of 1953, which focused on the covert use of biological and chemical materials as part of the agency's ongoing behavioral control efforts. Under names like Project Artichoke and Project Chatter, these projects persisted into the 1960s, and the programs involved hundreds of unwitting test subjects who were administered various drugs, including LSD. Yeah. Um, and it's like a lot of like vulnerable communities, like and some people signed up for it, but they didn't know. Mm-hmm. And then they just start freaking out and they don't understand why, because you've drugged them. Mm-hmm. So now mm-hmm. that uh, this specific instance really makes me think of the clone Tyrone in that it's not far fetched to think the government would have a secret underground bunker where it was kidnapping and experimenting on people without their consent uh, with drugs, uh, as many historical accounts reinforce the CIA's capacity to do so. Um, As we move into the 1960s, the CIA, in support of the U.S. war in Vietnam, renewed old and established connections with Laotian, Burmese, and Thai drug merchants, as well as a corrupt military and political leaders in Southeast Asia. Despite the notable increase in heroin production during this period, the agency's dealings with these individuals attracted minimal attention into the early 1970s. And then in 1967, Manuel Antonio Norega, he's important, became a CIA agent, uh, CIA asset specifically, uh, initially recruited by the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency in 1959. Following his assumption of leadership in Panama's intelligence services after the 1968 military coup, Norega became a valuable asset for U.S. covert operations. CIA Director George Bush specifically paid Norega $110,000 in 1976, despite evidence of his involvement in drug trafficking dating back to 1971. While payments were suspended during the Carter administration, Norega returned to the U.S. payroll when President Reagan assumed office in 1981. Throughout the 1980s, Norega was handsomely rewarded for supporting Contra forces in Nicaragua. What was in Nicaragua? By the Contras, friends. Cocaine, uh, receiving $200,000 from the CIA in 1986 alone. Um, We just talked about like us unsettling, you know, governments. Oh, literally, (laughs) yeah. In that area. Like we were just talking about that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Um, (laughs) It's really gross, man. I don't know. So in May 1970, a Christian science monitor correspondent revealed that the CIA was aware of, if not directly involved in the extensive movement of opium out of Laos. A charter pilot claimed that opium shipments received special CIA clearance and monitoring during flights southward out of the country. That is so insane. Yeah. Um, This revelation coincided with around uh, 30,000, I can't say numbers, 30,000 U.S. service members in Vietnam being addicted to heroin. So the evidence was that there was 30,000 U.S. service members addicted to the heroin that they had been shipping out uh, through uh, the opium shipments. They didn't even want to be there. Yep. So in 1972, I know I told you it's real. It's a lot. It's <laughs> by 1972, no. Yale University doctoral student Alfred McCoy published a groundbreaking study titled "The Politics of Heroin in Southeast Asia: Exposing the Cold War Politics and U.S. Covert Operations." Uh, contributed to the heroin boom in the Golden Triangle. The CIA attempted to suppress McCoy's book, 
But in 1973, Thai national Pudapran uh, Kamkaran was arrested in connection with the seizure of 59 pounds of opium in Chicago. As a CIA informant on narcotics trafficking in northern Thailand, Kamkaran claims that the agency had full knowledge of his actions. The U.S. Justice Department states that the CIA quashed the case to avoid potential embarrassment due to Kamkaran's involvement in CIA activities in Thailand, Burma, and elsewhere. Um, by June 1975, we're not even to Reagan yet, uh, Mexican police, <laughs> aided by U.S. drug agents, arrested Albert Cecilia Falcon, whose Tijuana-based operations reportedly generated $3.6 million per week from cocaine and marijuana sales oh. in the United States. Cecilia claimed that the CIA... Uh, pro what he claimed to be a CIA protege, trained as part of the agency's anti-Castro effort, efforts uh, in exchange for assisting in weapons movement for certain groups in Central America. The CIA allegedly facilitated his drug trafficking. Um, in 1974, Cecilia's aide, Jose Agozzi, uh, a CIA-trained intelligence officer and Bay of Pigs veteran, reportedly secured agency support for a right-wing plot to overthrow the Portuguese government. Among Cecilia's supporters are influential figures, including Miguel Nazar Haro, uh, who was the head of the DFS, when acknowledged by the CIA as one of the most important source of their most important source in Mexico and Central America. Um, when Nazar was implicated in a stolen car ring later on, the CIA intervened to prevent his indictment in the United States. So um Sash. Exactly. Lots of sus things taking place. Lots of names that are very clearly deeply rooted in drug trafficking, etc. Um, that they're it's like, why are you coming up in your mouth? You know? Yeah, that yeah. they're like literally paying and collaborating with. Um, so and some of this is alleged, like they don't have as I said, they don't have the pictures, they don't have exact evidence, but there's enough to insinuate proof uh for the public. <laughs> opinion mm -hmm. you know i'm not writing an academic paper on this but i think based on reading all of these documents that that seems right um and in april 1978 a soviet-backed coup in afghanistan paved the way for explosive growth in the southwest asian heroin trade the cia supported rebel mujahideen this is document on paper by the way this part um the cia mm -hmm. supported rebel mujahideen expanded opium production to fund their insurgency between 1982 and 1989 the cia sent billions of dollars in weapons and aid to mujahideen resulting in a significant increase in annual opium production in afghanistan reaching about 80 or 800 tons from 250 tons. By 1986, the State Department acknowledged Afghanistan as probably the world's largest producer of opium for export and the primary source of the Southwest Asian heroin in the United States. Despite the U.S. officials... Despite this, U.S. officials failed to take action to curb production, maintaining public support for Mujahideen and ensuring smooth relations with Pakistan, whose leaders were deeply implicated in the heroin trade and assisted in channeling CIA support to the Afghan rebels. It's like you sound like you're like you're a crazy person when you're like, and this is like, <laughs> and this isn't like a congressional report. Yeah, Congress. And like, no, no, yeah, that was us. Yeah, and it gets it gets grosser, um, specifically once we hit the '80s, because uh, John Kerry uh, wrote with a subcommittee, like, published a whole paper that basically confirmed that if they didn't do it directly, they let it happen, and were working with these people. So, mm -hmm. whether they meant to or not, they caused it. Um, that is proven. Um, the intent is what's not proved, essentially. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so in June 1980, the CIA, despite prior knowledge, failed to prevent no members of the Bolivian army, assisted by Argentine counterparts, from orchestrating the cocaine coup. Former DEA agent Michael Levine contended that the agency not only failed to intervene, but actively supported cocaine trafficking in Bolivia, and government officials attempting to combat traffickers reportedly faced violence, including torture and death orchestrated by CIA-sponsored paramilitary terrorists. Under the command of fugitive Nazi war criminal Klaus Barbie, who was also allegedly protected by the CIA. Of course. Yeah, but we're but we're 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 not anti-Semitic. It's fine. Um in February 1985, the DAA uh, agent Enrique Kiki Camarena uh, was kidnapped and murdered in Mexico. DEA, FBI, and U.S. Customs Service investigators accused the CIA of obstructing their investigation of this, alleging that the CIA prioritized protecting its assets, including top drug trafficker Miguel Alex Feliz Gallardo, um, instead of like human lives. So in 1982, the DEA discovered that Felix Gallardo was moving 20 million monthly through a Bank of America account, but the CIA did not cooperate with the investigation. Gallardo's main partner, Honduran drug lord Juan uh, Ramon Mata Balestros, uh, had amassed a two billion fortune as a cocaine supplier to the Alberto Cecilia Falcon. Um, Mata's air transport firm, Setco, received $186,000 from the U.S. State Department to fly humanitarian supplies to Nicaraguan Contras from 1983 to 1985, and the government witnessed witnesses in the trials of Camaro's accused killers alleged that the CIA protected leading Mexican drug traffickers in exchange for their financial support to the Contras. Also important. Um, in 1988, the Reagan administration deemed Manuel Norega no longer useful to the Contra cause and approved its an indictment of Norega on drug charges. And U.S. State Senate... We don't need him anymore. Yeah. He was like... <laughs> We already did what we wanted. Um, U.S. Senate investigators had discovered substantial information about the criminal involvement of top Panaman, uh, Panamanian, Panamanian. Yeah, Panamanian <laughs> officials uh, for nearly two decades with little response from the United States. By April 1989, the Senate Subcommittee on Terrorism, Narcotics, and International Communications, led by Senator John Kerry, released a 1,166-page report on drug corruption in Central America and the Caribbean. The report reveals substantial evidence of drug smuggling by individuals associated with the Contras, their suppliers, pilots, and mercenaries working in the region. U.S. officials, the subcommittee notes, failed to address the drug issue and to avoid jeopardizing the war efforts against Nicaragua. Some senior policymakers believed that using drug money was a perfect solution to the Contras funding problems. Perfect, that's what we're saying? Yep. Solution? That's yep. also what we're saying? Okay. Um, and in January 1993, Honduran businessman Ingenio Molina Osario was arrested in Lubbock, Texas for supplying $90,000 worth of cocaine to DEA agents. Molina claimed to work with the CIA providing political intelligence. Subsequently, a letter from CIA headquarters led to the dismissal of his case. Molina later admitted his drug involvement wasn't a CIA operation, but acknowledged the agency protected him due to his value as a political intelligence source in Honduras. In November 1996, former head of Venezuelan National Guard and CIA operations 
operative Jen Ramon Jillian Davila was indicted in Miami on charges of smuggling 22 tons of cocaine into the United States. Over a ton of cocaine was shipped to the country with CIA approvals as part of an undercover program aimed at catching drug smugglers and an operation kept secret from other U.S. agencies. So uh, there were people who called these issues out uh, who were heavily scrutinized, suppressed, or discredited. As we mentioned before, Alfred McCoy and their book um, was suppressed by the CAA, CIA. But uh, the difference between him and who I'm about to mention is this was before the internet. After mm. the internet, we got Gary Webb. Uh, mm. who, uh, no, that's funny. It's funny because Gary Webb and he was on the web. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so what's it? So I'm going to explain why he's super interesting. So an article titled what we really know about the CIA and crack by Daniel Finn on the Jacobin, uh, they discussed the controversial stance of Gary Webb who wrote for the San Jose Mercury news. So Webb wrote a series called the dark Alliance, the story behind the crack explosion on August 18th, 1996, which argued that the CIA had been funneling drugs into LA to be distributed in black neighborhoods specifically called, uh, the CIA contra crack cocaine controversy, a review of the justice department's investigations and prosecutions, uh, this is like a follow-up article. So specifically in that article from the U.S. Department of Justice, uh, which is on their website, they wrote, the introduction of the first installment of the series read, for the better part of a decade, a San Francisco Bay Area drug ring sold tons of cocaine to the Crips and Blood Street Gangs of Los Angeles and funneled millions of drug profits to, to a Latin American guerrilla army run by U- the U.S. Central Intelligence Agency, a Mercury News investigation has found. This drug network opened up the first pipeline between Colombia's cocaine cartels and the black neighborhoods of Los Angeles, a city known as the crack capital of the world. The cocaine that flooded in helped spark a crack explosion in urban America and provided the cash and connections needed for the LA's gangs to buy automatic weapons. So the three-day article series titled The Dark Alliance states Ricky Donnell Ross, a 19-year-old who in the early 1980s became a significant figure in the Los Angeles drug operation, uh, they depict him as a disillusioned young man on the streets of South Central Los Angeles. Starting with a small-scale cocaine peddling, Ross quickly rose to become one of the largest cocaine dealers in South California, ultimately facing federal drug trafficking charges on March 1996. The Dark Alliance series asserts that Ross's ascent in the drug trade was facilitated by Oscar Danilo Blandin and Norwin Menzies, individuals linked to the FDN, a group associated with the Nicaraguan Contras. Blandin and Menzies allegedly slipped, supplied Ross with large quantities of cocaine, which he converted into crack and distributed in black communities in South Central Los Angeles. These profits from drug trafficking operation were claimed to have been used by Blandin and Menzies to support Contra the Contra Army's war efforts. Um, the Jacobin article Uh, In that article, they note that while there were holes and flaws in Webb's reporting, further articles that came out, including the John Kerry report and a report published by a CIA person managing a nightmare, uh, claim that the CIA was at the very least complicit in these happenings. And the article on the Jacobian saying the CIA claimed that any story linking it to the 1980s crack cocaine explosion was conspiratorial slander, but the evidence of its complicity is all there in the congressional record. While the CIA CIA's intention was maintaining national security and American interests, the evidence showcases that they were ready and willing to sacrifice the Black community and those impacted by poverty to maintain it. And in an article titled Managing a Nightmare, How the CIA Watched Over the Destruction of Gary Webb on the Intercept by Ryan Devereaux, they say that in 1985, more than a decade before that 
series was published, there were journalists like Robert Perry and Brian Barger that also outlined Contra's involvement in cocaine trafficking as a means to fund war efforts in Nicaragua. And in a, they, it is in a move that foreshadowed Webb's experience, the Reagan White House launched a concerted behind-the-scenes campaign to besmirch the professionalism of Perry and Barger and to discredit all reporting on Contras and drugs. Additionally, the Jacobin article references another, specifically a 1997 article in the Columbia Journalism Review titled The Storm Over the Dark Alliance by Peter Kornbluh, where he highlights that there was no question that the Dark Alliance included flaws, which the CIA was able to exploit. But Kornbluh said the series was problematic. This, the Kornblas said the series was problematically sourced and criticized for its repeated promises of evidence that on close reading it did not deliver, and it failed to definitively connect the story's key players to the CIA, but he noted there were inconsistencies in Webb's timeline of events. Kornblas also uncovered problems, however, with the retaliatory reports described as balanced by the CIA, and in a case of the LA Times, he wrote the paper stumbled into the same problems of hyperbole, selectivity, and credibility that was it was attempting to expose, while ignoring declassified evidence, uh, also neglected by the New York Times and Washington Post, that lent credibility to Webb's thesis. Clearly, there was room to advance a contra-drug CIA story rather than to simply denounce it. Um, and to Webb's own recollection of events before his unfortunate loss of his life in 2006, he reflected in his book called Into the Buzzsaw that prior to Dark Alliance, I was winning awards, getting raises, lecturing college classes, appearing in TV shows and judging journalism contests. And then I wrote some stories that made me realize how sadly misplaced my bliss had been. The reason I'd enjoyed such smooth sailing for so long hadn't been, as I assumed, because I was a careful and diligent, I was careful and diligent and good at my job. The truth was that in all those years, I hadn't written anything important enough to suppress. So um, unfortunately, yeah, uh, all of the suppression efforts and stuff like that, like in terms of how it impacted him, it really impacted his mental health and that's how he lost his life. Um, and that is really sad. But essentially, all the evidence about what he said, well, in terms of, as I said, like in the academic space, like there were flaws in his reporting, but in the declassified documents that came out, it did validate that there was reason to question the Contra CIA uh, mm. relationship and that these key players like did exist. Like obviously the CIA is gonna cover their tracks track super well. Like it's going to be hard to report on them. The whole thing is that they're a secret intelligence agency <laughs> like that isn't public records. So like um, there were actual declassified documents that validated a lot of Webb's claims. And unfortunately, you know, he was treated so poorly by his colleagues and other people that it really impacted him. Um, yeah, that they were inspired to like shut him down instead of investigate further. Yeah. And that what's interesting about this is that the CIA for him didn't even push for that to happen. It was like the monkey in a barrel situation where like they were just ready to defend the government like other news programs mm -hmm. like they were just like we know if you uh don't defend the government your career gets trashed too so we're gonna go in hard and they like destroyed this man um who was genuinely mm -hmm. presenting something that had validity clearly from the things that congress themselves admitted took place so it's it's a whole thing i wrote more about it if you want to read it in our blog but in the interest of time i'm going to skip over the rest of that section um, essentially, uh, why is this relevant to They Clone Tyrone? 
These allegations and the historical context surrounding them provide the backdrop for the Glenn. It validates and reinforces the justified distrust of organizations like the CIA and our government that while is while there is not enough evidence, although that is debatable in my opinion, to prove without a doubt that the CIA directly funneled drugs into black neighborhoods, there is enough evidence to prove that they were at the very least complicit and funding players in that trade that made that funneling possible, and that the US government and the CIA are not above experimenting on its populations as a means of control and are willing to use drugs as a means to do so. And that our government has evidenced instances that it has openly admitted to manipulating and funding crime organizations to fund wars, to avoid congressional oversight, and do whatever the fuck else they think protects national security and American interests. Mm -hmm. um, even if that comes at the cost of millions of innocent lives to prevent communism, I guess. Um, it's honestly like... It is clear that like, sure, maybe they weren't like, yeah, funnel it in there. But also they weren't like, oh, we care about black people enough to not have that be the result of what we're doing. Like the racism is there. Mm -hmm. um, whether they gave the order for it or not, the lack of care for those communities, the systemic machine that is white supremacy, racism and capitalism in our country did the work for them. Yeah. Um, and the last part of my section uh, I know this is a lot, uh, is Reaganomics and the impact on Black economic mobility. Um, so in unpacking the philosophy surrounding Reaganomics and the viewpoints of those in power during this time, it is very clear the visceral hatred of the administration felt towards poverty. Um, there's also audio recordings. Literally, you don't, you don't have to listen to them. They're horrific. But uh, there's an audio recording proving how racist Reagan and Nixon were, um, mm. where they're having a conversation. And it's like on... I put a link to it, but you do not have to listen to it. It's awful. Um, so the combination of these two very harmful biases deeply influences Reagan's economic policy and directly harmed the black community. It's not so different than some of the arguments we see today to remove free lunch programs for children, arguments against raising the minimum wage, or even the myth of welfare greens and the government benefit exploitation idea. Um, it's clear as well in the distribution of financial resources that this country hasn't cared about human lives more than money in a really long time, if ever. Uh, and, in a, and in a paper titled Reaganomics and its Implications for African-American Family Life by Maurice A. St. Pierre on a Journal of Black Studies in 1991, they outline the perspective of many Reagan-supporting economists of the time. The context surrounding the 1980s was that there was a double-digit inflation that was not based on, pre like kind of conflicted with the previous understanding of Keynesian model of economic theory. Uh, and it, this is their push towards supply side economics. So they mm -hmm. say that other supply siders like Bruce Bartlett, former staff member of the Republican Congressman Jack Kemp, specifically drew attention to the need to index the tax code for inflation, to cut rates across the board, cap government spending, and reduce regulations and government credit activities as a prescription for improving America, the American economy. The irony around these views was that simultaneously, the government was sending hundreds of thousands of dollars to fund wars and CIA-backed agents that they knew were dealing drugs. So cut government funding where? Uh, they also increased the military budget by 144%, but... <laughs> Let's cut food stamps. Who's counting? Who's um, counting? They continue to say that the goal of supply side economics was to help American economy and argued it would benefit minorities and black people by extension. Sure. To give you a better idea of the kind, it's like rich people being like, let them eat cake. It's literally let them eat cake. Like, 
mm-hmm. it's trickle down economics is what having, like no idea what actually is existing in any other class other than their own and like not caring um so like their idea of what how to fix it it's like that whole um they went to a village and like planted a garden and then the villagers didn't help them because they're like that's where the rhinos run why would you plant mm-hmm. a garden there it was stupid and it was like if you asked us where to plant the garden we would have told you you know what i mean yeah. so it's like the white savior complex of like let's help them but we have no idea how and you're not asking the people there how they need help um so rich people should not make the decisions <laughs> for how to help mm-hmm. people who are in need um at the end of the day so to give you a better idea of the kinds of people we're dealing with economist thomas sowell of the hoover institution uh for example, argued in favor of dismantling such government programs as minimum wage, aids to education, and job training, and turning those issues over to the private sector, who we know do a great job. Uh, Sowell asserted that many other government programs, the minimum wage, severely limited the freedoms of Black people to make decisions about what wage they will accept for employment, um, which is actually like no... Um, it, prote- it removes any protection they have from being exploited and paid under a minimum. Um, but sure. Uh, he supported the elimination of current aid to education programs in which only public schools received government funds. And even though these schools often did not pri- provide ac- adequate education, instead he sought a system that would provide vouchers to parents so that they could choose what school they thought offered the best education at the illusion of choice. Uh, Additionally, Mm -hmm. he was against government regulations because they implied people were better off with less options. The above government, uh, the above arguments are of interest because they are reflective of some of the basic values of American life of there ain't no such thing as free lunch is very much like you, everyone can work. And if you don't work, you deserve to die. Uh, It really was that like Mm -hmm. belief of that. Um, uh, and it was the way Arthur uh, Shenfield, he was an economist, that's what it comes from him. Um, and it emphasized mm-hmm. that work ethic, which some would argue that like America's work ethic was worth it and would mm-hmm. present itself like people want to work, you know, um, Yeah. and was the best thing about America. So that's what his belief system was in reading this. The delusion is delusioning. Um, and in the late 1970s and early 1980s, the Reagan administration um well, specifically before he got there and then as he continued to be there uh, after the 1981 election, the Reagan administration's budget cuts disproportionately impacted black Americans, especially in housing and urban development. The emphasis on increased defense spending, as again, I said, by 144.5 percent, they increased the defense spending, led to a surge in military enlistment among young black males due to limited job opportunities. So they're like, put all the jobs into the military. They're not going to have a choice. The whole thing is that mm-hmm. they're not going to have a choice, but they're preaching to the general public who don't have the Internet to tell them they're wrong, <laughs> that uh, this will give them more choices. Um, anyway, Reaganomics exacerbated uh, existing disparities, increased the likelihood of poverty among black children and the reductions in government assistance programs, such as aid to families with dependent children and child support enforcement hit black families harder than white families. Reagan era reforms driven by supply side economics aimed to cut welfare spending affecting the AFDC, the aid to families with dependent children and uh, the child support enforcement. Uh, And these Changes, including job search requirements and cuts to allowances for uh, the larger ACDF or ACDC. uh, Oh, my God. AFDC. I'm dyslexic, friends. Uh, (laughs) Forgive me. Households disproportionately affected black American families. There was even like one guy who like wanted to force that if you had a kid under the age of 16, that you had to live with your parents um, so that they wouldn't receive double 
checks essentially mm. even though twice as much money was still needed you still had twice as many kids um if your kids had kids you know what i mean like it's still mm -hmm. it was a manipulation tactic to limit amount of money that was going out and make it significantly difficult more difficult for people who needed support and aid to receive aid um, barriers essentially uh, and they also cut summer meal programs, uh, increased restrictions on free breakfast and lunch, and changed food stamps regulations to uh, basically lower the amount that people would get, so further, which further strained vulnerable communities. Additionally, the elimination of programs like CETA or public service employment, along with funding costs to job corps, were cut, uh, hindering job opportunities for economically disadvantaged individuals, particularly Black Americans, really to funnel them into the military because uh, they didn't have any other choice. These policy mm -hmm. changes forced many to seek financial support outside of traditional avenues as well due to lack of legitimate earning opportunities, so the rise in crime. Um, cause that was the only way to get money. Uh, if the government can go <laughs> mm -hmm. do organized crime, why can't the average person? Um, so <laughs> from the YouTube video and lecture titled Reaganomics, the impact on black economic mobility from the Institute of politics from Harvard Kennedy school recorded on March of 1982. Thank you again, Gabe, for sharing that with me. Um, the lecture on Reaganomics, uh, and it's impact, they speak on the, uh, Reaganomics and its impact on Black economic mobility and discusses a shift in public perception around welfare during the Reagan administration. So uh, Professor Ronald Ferguson highlights a survey comparing attitudes towards public welfare versus help for the needy. And the results revealed that when uh, they gave about two separate surveys, and in one, they put public welfare as an option, and on another, they put help for the needy, just to clarify. Um, and the results revealed that when labeled as public welfare, many respondents considered that the first option to cut funding to um, above like streets or like public, other public supports, education, et cetera. They wanted to cut public welfare, but if they listed it as help for the needy, that was the last thing on the list. They thought people mm. who needed help should receive the help. They would not request like reducing funding to that. Um, and it kind of like, if you think of like how the PR for the CIA mm -hmm. existed, this is like a test for them to see, <laughs> How can yeah. we get people to not care about poor people? It's all about the marketing. Um, so many responders consider yeah, that welfare queen marketing. Mm -hmm, exactly. So the shift in perception driven by the Reagan administration portrayed welfare recipients as lazy and taking advantage of the system. Despite Reagan's intention to incentivize work, the legislation resulted in people opting to stay on welfare for financial security because the wages that he removed the minimum wage. The wages from jobs were so low that they couldn't cover basic necessities. Uh, this situation persists today with companies like Walmart paying low wages, leaving employees dependent upon support services so that they won't actually raise the wage because they know that the government will cover that gap. So the idea that the rich people will do the right thing is evidence to not be right or true. Um, and how that all coincides... <laughs> with drugs is that poverty, unfortunately, when you're living in a hard time and there's no jobs, there's, I have to find a way to earn money to protect your family. And largely mm -hmm. in those neighborhoods, guess what was being funneled in, in mass amounts, drugs. Yeah, that 19 year old became a drug lord. Yeah, so like to feed his family, I imagine. Like, <laughs> honestly, it's, yeah, it's super gross. Yeah. Yeah. And I think a lot of this is it ties back to this idea of the illusion of choice. Right. So all these people think they have a choice. You think you're choosing to join the military. You think you're choosing like all of them thought there was some choice in that. 
that they were making those decisions and instead they were just a tool for oppression um yeah something uh that's really great about the Gary Webb thing is that like the reason his claim got so much popularity before he was like intentionally slandered was because of the internet and like uh, black Americans like seeing his paper mm-hmm. um, and then like using that to put up lawsuits against the CIA and the government um, essentially like even if like they were like it's not factually backed or whatever like it was what sparked that wide understanding that that's what was happening, whether they meant to or not, that's what was happening. And like that they had a reason to be angry and to protest, like additionally, other than like the million other things, but like they had evidence Mm -hmm. of them doing it enough to validate like their legal claims and stuff like that. So uh, that was the power of the internet. So I think of like the uh, first guy who wrote about it, who got silenced, Uh, The reason they couldn't silence Gary Webb is because of the internet. And I think of social media today and how that really acts as like the tool that like they have the (laughs) Disney Hulu propaganda of the (sighs) of what's happening in Palestine right now. And Mm -hmm. that's not accurate, but we have TikTok and we have Instagram. Like we have the social media that's showing us that that's not real. So there are people who are going to fall into the propaganda of thinking it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but social media is here. There's a whole conversation right there about mass mainstream media um, and the fact that they're all like the mainstream media is all controlled by the same three companies. And so that's why it's so easy for them to silence um these uh reports and it still happens today there's things like local news organizations are silenced because of things that are happening like i've experienced that and so mm-hmm. it's one of the reasons why i purposely work <laughs> in non-mainstream media um and why mm-hmm. you know we have a world like uh a place like pa- like podcasts and um youtube where people can be sharing information and trying to get the truth out there. And like you were saying in different social media aspects. Um, that yeah. we and they also use radio. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Although there's also like the, there's like a, the, the radio, there's like a radio channel that I don't remember what it's called, but it's supposedly like where the government comes clean and they'll be like, Oh, we're reporting on it. And it turns out that it's actually um, run like it's manipulated and the the government Mm. is like actually a part of it it's not someone revealing what the government is up to it's the government being like yeah tell them about this stuff yeah so they're distracted um yeah 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 distraction (laughs) distraction distraction that's the really big thing is like you know like the magic trick of like look over here and then I'm doing stuff over here um that's exactly what this film really was because all of those little things like it, what we were seeing was like the white powder the um the church all of those things brought like passive like joy and so like it, again it was like the opiate of the masses so if we're just like mm-hmm. you know placated and happy and then we're distracted and we're not you know, aware of how it's harming us, then we're going to allow it to keep doing that. Um, Mm -hmm. So if you keep people happy, keep them on drugs, you keep them like thinking they have some type of power, no one's saying nothing. No one's doing Mm -hmm. nothing to get out of it. And you win. Yeah, exactly. So ultimately, keep spreading the word. 
Yeah. Yeah. Um, like Clown Tyrone. Um, <laughs> well, I hope you like that episode. It's, it's uh, super lengthy and educational um, from both sides. I think that was really fun. Yeah. Um, we have more for this series. We got, I believe, two more episodes, and then we're going to be shifting into something new. So um, let us know what you think about Fake Clown Tyrone. Uh, have you seen it? What is your favorite black exploitation film that you think I should watch? Um, <laughs> anything like that? Uh, and do you agree that the CIA was doing like all over the place, the whole world? That's insane. Yeah, and those ones are admitted. Like the lot, yeah. like ninety percent of that didn't have the word allegedly attached to it. Those have been yeah. admitted things the CIA has on record done. <laughs> Whenever I said allegedly, that was the only one that was like, oh, we don't have like all the names and evidence and whatever. Mm -hmm. I said that like three times of that whole list. <laughs> yeah. So 90 is a lot. It's a lot of them admitting that they're garbage. So yeah. Again, just because you're paranoid. Doesn't yeah, mean and they're the ones whose laws were supposed to be followed. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, don't get married. Delete your kids. I'm sad though. Yeah. <laughs> your kids. Or they're manipulating your kids. They won't let you feed your kids. Or what you're allowed to feed your kids is poison. And then yeah. they put your kids in the military or in the drug world and they go, oh, dang. Sorry. That sucks. Yeah. For the choice you made. And they own all the companies and then say, you have a choice. Yeah. Yes, the original choice. Yeah. Choose one of these three companies who owns everything. Yeah. Okay, we're going to have commercials that pretend we have competition. It's so weird. <laughs> it's so weird. It is so weird. Okay. Bye.